and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this podcast helpful. listeners so coming up is katie gardini's uh, interview of her amazing book about uh single women in evangelical spaces in the u.s and uk but first of all we just want to uh just chat about the uk i guess for a few minutes and also our new co-hosts of vicky and sarah p so welcome girls ladies hello (laughs) (laughs) and we were just thinking about in terms of what's happened for the last couple of weeks because obviously we haven't been on over the summer and um i suppose that one of the one of the biggest things that's happened in the uk is the commonwealth games so is anyone any thoughts about the commonwealth games and women in the commonwealth games well i've had it on in the background constantly i love the commonwealth games i love it because it's like you don't often get to see it's not always on tv so when it is on tv i make the most of it yeah, I love I love a sporting event and I live in Birmingham so the buzz around the city has been insane. Um and it's really sad now because all the kind of posters and stuff are coming down and um the kind of commonwealth colors have all gone. Um it's exciting because the roads are open again so you can actually get places. Um but yeah, it's been amazing to be in the city where it's all been hosted and just know that it's going on just down the road. Um but yeah, I think it's also been fantastic to just see like the whole of you know like the kind of different teams achieving so much um but what about you Amy what's what have you picked up from it well first of all I was thinking that I'm sure that it was totally awesome that all your roads were totally blocked up for a few <laughs> weeks because I know how much I love living just outside London and uh, roads being closed and blocked off but um I was just thinking in terms of so I put it on my Twitter account um I think her name's Emily Campbell and how she won the gold for um it was weight uh weights um what do I call it like something a jerk clean is it clean and clean and clean jerk and yeah and it was you know and I put it on Twitter and all these men were like oh my gosh that, her form was so amazing it's so good and she got a gold so you know and I love that because you know this I perception especially in conservative Christianity of you know, what a woman's body should look like. And I just kind of loved it that she was so strong and, you know, and yeah, so amazing. So I kind of loved that. That was my, my thing from there. Um, so I don't know about you guys. Yeah. I mean, I love the gymnastics. So just seeing like what a female body can do. And especially because I just look at it and think there is literally no chance on this earth that I would ever be able to do a single percent of any of those moves. Um, But I think also the way in which the teams are really just great at celebrating each other as well. Um, It's lovely to see that, that kind of camaraderie and thinking like, yeah, like I'm aware that your score is going to mean that I get knocked down a place, but actually I'm going to really celebrate you because I know how much that means to you. Um, And I don't, know that we're always fantastic at cheering other people on um so yeah I think that just gave me food for thought to think yeah I need to not it's that whole thing about isn't it like not excluding people because you feel threatened but actually celebrating them and knowing that there's space for everybody yeah 
Yeah, yeah totally. I agree with that. It's great to see uh, women, you know, supporting each other and and encouraging each other, even if it means that potentially they will get a higher medal than themselves. But yeah, it's been great to watch that. Mm. Uh, aside from that, I just wonder if it's worth mentioning um, the title of Katie's book. So I'm not oh, sure. Oh yeah, it it Sorry, yeah. Um, so Katie's book is called "The Struggle to Stay." Um, and yeah, you can get it at all good book outlets as far as I'm aware. Um, but yeah, the struggle to stay. Great. Should we listen to the interview? Yep, let's do it. Right. Hi, RGP listeners. Today we have Dr. Katie Gadini. Is it is, is Gadini, isn't it? I meant to ask you. Yes, that's correct. Okay, okay, good. Sorry, I'm totally dyslexic. I'm hopeless at reading names. Um, so a sociologist at the Social Research Institute at the University of College London, so UCL, and she is also affiliated researcher in the University of Johannesburg Department of Sociology. Um, Gadini has previously worked in the prevention of gender-based violence in Peru, South Africa and Spain and the USA. So thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so I was just thinking like a few months ago, um, I saw, I think it's Beth Allison Barr um, quote tweeted you or, or retweeted Scott McKnight uh, about your book. And I had a look on Twitter and was interested in the title. So for me personally, I read m- myself in the pages and at the preface, you talked about women being angry and you yourself being angry and how the patriarchal culture where you had no voice and this kind of touches on how I felt about certain cultural practices within the evangelical church. Um, so for me personally, I try and use my voice on social media and also this podcast to stand up against the silence of women. Uh, I do actually find social media a great place for that because however many church men try to silence women in the church, they cannot do it so well on social media. Well, that's my experience anyway. So all that does to say, I do really appreciate your book and using your voice for the millions of women who are silenced and angry and have, you know, either walked away or are still trying to make a difference and change from the church within. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that, really. That was my little bump that I really, you know, I loved reading your book and I really appreciated it. Yeah, I think similarly for myself, um, like equally as Amy said, I could really find myself in the pages and whilst... Uh, like I'm married and I have children I felt like some of the struggles were struggles that I'd faced as well in terms of um, which I'm sure we'll get on to talk about but that whole idea of not fitting the kind of perfect female and stuff like that I was just like oh my gosh this is exactly it everybody needs to read this book Um, so yeah I just want to thank you for kind of so faithfully representing the stories and drawing the conclusions that you did it was just such a fantastic read and really appreciated it. Yeah, great. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I was writing this book with that intention or hope in mind that it would reach women in Christian denominations, that they would feel seen, they would feel represented, that it would accurately describe their experience and that they would feel less alone by reading it. So I suppose, uh, obviously, you being American with your American accent and us being in the UK, uh, what do you think is the most significant difference and also the similarities in the UK, uh, US evangelical church in terms of theology or and practice? Mm. 
So I was really surprised when I first moved to the UK nine years ago and was attending evangelical churches for myself, not for research purposes, of how similar these churches were to churches I'd grown up with in the States. The music was the same. Um, the style of dress of the male pastor was the same. The struggles the women were pushing against were the same. So that's something that struck me, you know, noticing all these cultural differences between the two countries, but then finding this space where there were so many similarities. Now, that being said, I've spent almost a decade in the UK and there are significant differences. So the main difference I see between the two churches, if you like, is it concerns politics. And I did a bit of research actually around Brexit and Trump getting elected in 2016. And this really came through in my research as well. So the women that I studied tended to be more politically on the left, tended to care more about social justice issues such as immigration, uh, racial equality, gender equality. Um, whereas even the women in the U.S. that were very focused on having more women in church leadership didn't necessarily attach to um, a left-wing politics outside of the church. So I'd say that's the biggest difference. But in terms of theology or spiritual practice, there are so many similarities and it's really hard to parse them apart. Um, so I was just thinking, whilst uh, your research focused on single women, what do you think the principles of fine art, do you think there's anything valid for any female deconstruction out of or within evangelicalism? Yeah, absolutely. I think that mold, you know, you were mentioning in the beginning of how there's this very prescribed and constricted idea of what it means to be a single woman also applies when you're married, what it means to be an ideal married woman in the church. And you could say this for sort of any life stage. And I've spoken to women who are widowed and women who are in their 60s and and, and maybe have been through other life things. They also feel this sense of constriction. So although my research was primarily with unmarried women, um, I do think that the same struggles, the struggle to stay and also the struggles to fit these ideal types changes, but carries through the woman's life course. Mm. Did you speak to many women that were obviously single, then married, then had children and then were divorced or hadn't even had children divorced? Yeah, I spoke to a few that wasn't sort of the main population I encountered. Um, I did speak to some who had been divorced and were single again and were in their 20s or in their 30s. Um, and increasingly now that the project's finished, I meet women, Christian women all the time who are divorced and young and really resonate with the findings of the book and feel that sense of marginalization almost more so because they were in this state of being celebrated and recognized. They'd met the markers of being young and married, and now they've kind of fallen out of favor often through no fault of their own and are feeling sort of that increased sense of now I'm tarnished, now I'm no longer valued in the same way as when I was married. And yet I'm not a single 19-year-old who kind of has that unbrokenness associated with them. I wonder if you um, have got any comment on the kind of place that I guess those women are left in in terms of so I've tried to kind of do it the right way I've tried to kind of do everything that I should do and you know I've ended up in this situation of maybe you know divorced or whatever um where that kind of leaves them with their faith so they've kind of done the practices hasn't worked out but how how where they're left in their relationship with God I guess 
I'd say it's a similar position to women who haven't been married, but have had serious relationships that have broken down, um, which is a place of feeling frustrated, feeling I don't fully fit, but I still am very secure and close in my relationship with God. And I still want the container of the church to foster that relationship but there's no place for me here. So what do I do? And it's that real limbo zone, which women can stay in that limbo zone, you know, for quite a long time before going one way or the other. But it's that sense of I've got one foot in, I've got one foot out. The church doesn't know what to do with me and I don't know what to do with them. And it's, it's a deeply distressing place, I would say for women that are in that position. And is that um, the situation that you referred to as the borderlands? Because I found that notion just fascinating. Like, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I originally was thinking about the borderlands because of one of the participants, the women I met, who was referring to kind of this out of center space, primarily because she's a black British woman and didn't feel that she fit with majority white churches. So that's how... I conceptualized that idea originally is in terms of race and in terms of social class. But now I've expanded the idea to very to very much include women who don't fit for a number of reasons, whether that's because they're divorced or they're still single or they're a woman of color or they're working class or they're a combination of all of the above. I think the borderlands is a really expansive place. Um, there are a lot of women who find themselves there for myriad reasons, sometimes the most innocent of reasons, just because maybe they're a strong personality or ambitious, they, that might also get them stuck in that sort of borderlands region. Yeah, I loved your summary at the end of that chapter that talked about this kind of ideal church that existed, but like I'm too tired or I haven't got the energy to go and find it. I was like, oh gosh, yeah, I'd love to find that church as well. I found yeah. that just summarized that space so well, um, that desire for that kind of church that is all encompassing and inclusive and yeah, allows everyone to thrive. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think tiredness really, as simple as it sounds, ends up being a determining factor of women who end up leaving the church or are willing to stick it out in these borderland regions is how much energy do you have left to keep kind of fighting or keep sticking in there? And, and when you get super tired and you can't keep doing it, and even not fighting, but even your very presence is seen as being oppositional or adversarial, then you don't have the wherewithal to keep it going. Um, so tiredness ends up being a huge litmus test. I was just thinking in terms of even our podcast, you know, that's what we're trying to do, fight for Christian Christian voices. So, you know, it's just like it can be tiring because, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I was thinking also in terms of like deconstruction and you obviously, obviously have a chapter on purity culture. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, over the last few years, deconstruction of the purity culture has been prevalent, especially on social media. So what do you think uh, about uh, for Christians who grew up in the purity culture that have been, what have they been left with now in terms, especially people in their 30s and 40s? Because, I mean, I'm, you know, it's full disclosure, 40 years old. And, uh, and uh, you know, that was part of my Christianity growing up in my teens, you know. So, what, you know, do you think, you know, what we've been left with? Do you yeah. Think? I'd say a lot of women are left with a lot of anger and a sense of resentment of, you know, my edu- my sexual education was abstinence only. That was impurity only. And, and that was certainly my case growing up in American evangelicalism. 
And then there's also a sense of having to start from scratch. So having to re-educate oneself or learn about healthy sexuality about two decades, 20 years later than your peers would have learned about it. So learning some of these basics, doing a self-study, reaching out to others, and there's a sense of resentment there. Um, There's also a sense of, I want to learn a healthy view of sexuality. I wasn't taught it. I'm going to deconstruct what I learned, and now I'm going to build from the ground up again. Um, So I have a lot of respect and admiration for women that that go through that process. It's not an easy process. You don't have the structures or the support in place that maybe a teenager does back in their in their teens that are learning about sexuality. Um, but there's a lot of hurt at the same time and a lot of resentment and anger, especially for women, because their worth was so conflated and associated with their sexuality, their bodies, and their purity. And that takes decades to unravel and to heal from. And women, even into marriages, struggle with that. Well, I just think uh, when I came a Christian at 16, my mum was a single mum, poor working class. And, you know, and then when I hit like 19, I met some uh, you know, girls, women in church. And I remember one of my friends had quite a like a strong father figure, shall we say. And she's trying to like hand me over the, the uh, I Kiss Dated Goodbye book, which is obviously a real classic. And I remember looking at me like, oh, well, I've lost my virginity now. I'm like, two three years ago like what's what's that for me but like she was like very much in that world you know and I you know I came from it from a totally different you know so I think but on the flip side I also never felt good enough because it was yeah. like because I was not from this two pair 2.4 foot my dad's an atheist my parents split up you know my mum's single you know slightly dysfunctional family and I was like I wanted to be part of this church group but at the same time it's just like they're all like this they've got nice middle-class families and that's not me and I think there's just such a, and there's nothing you could do about that when you see it there's absolutely nothing you do you can't change that um, no. so you constantly feel not good enough because you know but there's nothing you could do about it and I think that's the danger of this kind of yeah, purity culture and uh, t- of teaching. Yeah, for sure. Well, you raise, you raise a really good point, which is that female purity is associated as well with a particular class and racial category. Mm. So it's not just about women being pure on their own. There are very clear associations with purity, which has to do with whiteness and has to do with middle classness. So even if you are observing purity, if you don't meet those standards in other ways, you are already on the back foot. There's already a sense of defilement and inability to ever achieve it. Um, And that's often communicated in a very subtle way. You know, one example is just a lot of the purity books from the 90s and the 2000s feature on their covers white, middle-class looking women. And a lot of the descriptions that you'll find in those books, if you analyze them, describe women that have lily white skin or soft white skin. You know, these are actual quotes from those purity books. So there is a real racial and classed association with purity. Mm. And I suppose I would maybe say that the class is a bigger issue in the UK than maybe in the US. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I wonder if in within your research you found um, churches doing anything different kind of like in the more modern day or whether that kind of over kind of hangover from purity culture is still very much there in the teaching. I've seen a lot of churches and pastors aware of the damage that purity culture has wrought and desiring to do things differently 
whilst also maintaining the abstinence-only messaging. And some pastors really struggle with that. How do we communicate that abstinence-only but not fall into the trappings of purity culture? Um, And I don't see... So so one solution for that for a lot of pastors is to just avoid it altogether. And, you know, women would complain to me that we hear nothing about sexuality. We hear nothing about sex and where are we supposed to go for this? And I think it's because there is this real caughtness between, we know that that's really bad, but we also value this still. So how do we communicate this message? We don't even know how to do it. I was going to say, I'm not aware of any churches doing it especially well either. Like it it does feel like a big void, I think, of like how, like like you were saying, like, okay, well, this is what we did have and that's done a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. But so what do we do now? And I don't, well, you know, don't go to loads of churches, but I'm not aware of any really helpful teaching and um, Amy, I don't know about you, but when I think about my kids, I'm like, it's a bit of a kind of, well, what what do we do with this here? Like, yeah. how do we teach them positively? Because I definitely don't want to give them the hangups that I had growing up as a teenager within the church. I think things yeah. are coming through, like Sheila Gregoria. Yeah, I yeah. Bad said her probably said her name really badly, but um, you know, and she's really trying to you know uh, get in there with the evangelical you know sexuality because there is this big issue where you know women and men are like you say abstinence only. You're not supposed to do anything. You're supposed to like you know barely even kiss if you take it to extreme, and then suddenly you get married and you're like you're not even supposed to say no. So it's like, hold yeah. a minute, you've gone from one day saying you only say no to you never say no, like mm-hmm. as a woman. It's like, psychologically, like, oh my gosh, like, that's nuts. We, on my MA course, we had a kind of discussion about purity culture recently um, and just brought up that whole idea of as as a, as a girl, as growing into a young woman, you get to the point where you get married and everything stops like you never think about it again like you've kind of completed the task you've done purity culture you've waited until you got married if you did do that and then that's it and then you're left with a whole bunch of stuff that you don't realize until you're older and you think oh my gosh there is a whole heap of stuff there that has been buried and now needs to you know come up and be dealt with and challenged absolutely and I've spoken to women you know, many women anecdotally who in both countries who will say you know I'm married and I don't have a good sex life. I don't enjoy sex. I am not in touch with my sexuality and I don't know what to do because I haven't been educated properly. All I was told is don't do it. Close your legs until you're married. And now I'm married and you know, there's a lot more that goes into it and they don't feel they have the proper tools and they don't have space to talk about it. And that's really hard too, because women who are married can often feel like I, I can't speak to other women about this because there's this silence and everything's supposed to be great. And I still have questions or I have concerns. Um, so it really disadvantages women again, throughout the life course. It's not just for single women. It's for women throughout their life if they do decide and end up getting married. So I suppose just a pivot, um, just want, we wanted to ask you uh, to what extent do you think a female can call themselves a feminist if they choose to exist within the patriarchy of the church or uh, variants of patriarchy like complementarianism and things like that? Like how much can you be a feminist in those spaces? So I'm going to say quite controversially that I think you can be a feminist in those spaces. I think that all of us uh, who identify as feminists find ourselves in spaces that are um, patriarchal, that are male dominated, that are sexist. It's impossible to get away from. 
academia is another such space like that. Uh, many workplaces are, many relationships are. So I don't think that being in that space devalues um, someone's feminist sensibilities or feminist convictions at all. And I and I know that there have been a lot of differing opinions on that. You know, Mary Daly, the theologian, basically arrived at the position that you cannot be a feminist and stay in these spaces. And I disagree with that. I think that uh, it's inevitable that we will find ourselves in those spaces. I do think, though, there a little nuance to that is that there are certain compromises that we make when we stay in spaces like that. And I think there it's important to recognize what compromises we're making and what adjustments we're making and to constantly reevaluate when are our feminist convictions being violated to such a degree that staying in a space is actually not serving us or, or changing anything. And that's what I hope to do with the book is to push women as well to reevaluate those spaces and reevaluate their own participation in them. Yeah, and off, off the back of that, I think um, we were wondering about like the validity of women staying in those spaces with a view to changing stuff. And I, I wonder, um, sort of within your research, those that decided to stay and those that decided to leave, um, maybe I don't know how much you've kept up with them, but kind of where they're at now and whether they've, they're still there or still fighting or have decided to leave. So in, in general, I notice a trend over, you know, because now this has been nine years I've been tracking with a lot of these women, a trend that when we, women hit a certain point in their life cycle, in their somewhere around their 30s, again, it has to do with being tired, still not fitting the mold, still not finding a spouse and feeling marginalized, there tends to be more of an exodus. So I, I see in general that younger women are more willing to go for the fight and that women probably from around 34, 35 upwards, tend to be making an exit. Um, and a lot of that, again, has to do with tiredness or has to do with things aren't changing. And I've been putting in effort for a decade now, and it's not actually healthy to stay in this space. Um, and then I see young younger women take over those battles. And, and so it's been interesting to see the cyclical pattern and this kind of new wave of younger feminists stepping in where the older ones um, tapped out. Do you think, I don't suppose you know, like about, you know, COVID, has that sped up anything with people leaving like single women into the church or whether specifically people you know or just research, you know, uh, because I just personally, I know a lot of people have walked away from church or realised that actually those specifically evangelical spaces were just like, well, hold on a minute. I I, I, I haven't done this for like a year, 18 months and I've been okay. So maybe this isn't the greatest way to do church and I'm just wondering if you were already struggling as a single woman woman like uh, you know I don't know have you have you yeah have you spoken to people yeah. or you know seen that change yeah absolutely I'm what I'm seeing is that the pandemic offered a reset to a lot of women mm. it also forced women to get really creative with their faith. Um, so I remember speaking to a woman who began doing prayer walks around New York City um, to substitute kind of what she was getting from church once everything went online. Or I've talked to women in the UK before who have found other methods of, of joining up with women on Zoom calls to talk about their faith. So these new creative methods 
have replaced in some ways participation in church life. And they've served women a lot better than perhaps the church did because there's less struggle involved. There's less battle involved. Um, and so I am seeing women decide, actually, I don't need to go back regularly or I don't have to go back at all because I have my spiritual needs met in other ways now. And I'm too tired to go back anyways after the pandemic. Um, so I think it's been a good reset and it's also been a re-strategizing opportunity for women. And as always, women find really creative ways to um, to make things work. No, absolutely. So I was thinking, you know, like evangelicals, there's a big guilt culture there, isn't there, that you have to go to church and stuff and actually realize that you survive and you're still, if you're a Christian, you know, you, you're still okay with God, you know, suddenly you haven't been smited or anything because you haven't been to church for six months, you know. So, yeah, I think, you know, like say, a reset. Um, so I suppose what my uh, last question, um, it's kind of sim- similar theme to that, but uh, I think one of the uh, biggest ironies, like you obviously say in your book, is that there's actually more women in the church than men. And do you think after all your research, there are certain things that women could do to be liberated within the church in terms of like more theological education? Um, I say because I, I was thinking like women you talk to mostly would seem to be liberated and want to change things. But there's many, many, many women in the church that just part with the status quo. So is there kind of something that you think Christian women who desire liberation can say or do to like wake up other women? Does that make sense? Like, yeah. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think definitely theological training is a great place to start. I'm all for ordination of women, um, taking up formal roles. I I know it's a really hard path. I've known women that have pursued that path and been knocked back. Um, But I think that's an excellent way forward. And then I think a lot of it happens informally. It happens over lunches and brunches and walks in the park and women talking to other women and saying, hey, that incident that you're describing to me, that's not right. And that wouldn't happen to a man in the church or pointing out small things. Hey, do you notice how every time they introduce the pastor, it's all about his credentials. But when a woman gets up front, it's all about her being a wife and being a mother. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that's a bit odd? So starting those really small questions with women who are maybe not aware or haven't considered it or aren't as tuned in can really plant these seeds of questioning. And I've seen it happen with women that went from a place of thinking everything's fine to suddenly starting to question things and growing into that space of desiring equality more and noticing places of inequality in the church. Well, I think that was my last question. So unless Sarah's got anything else to add. No, I just, I love that as a summary of what, you know, women who are choosing to stay can do actually calling stuff out and not being afraid to say, hang on a second, that's not okay. Um, and you know, there's a cost that comes with that, isn't there? You know, it's not always received that well, but yeah, I love, I just love that challenge as well that we can end on to say, you know, it's all well and good saying this isn't okay, but how are we going to play our part in moving things forward? So thank you. Yeah. And I just want to add on that too. You know, it's not just pointing out how come we don't have any women speakers. It's pointing out how come whenever we do, it's a middle-class woman or how come every time, that we are pushing for women, it's white women. So I think it's taking it a step further. It's not just about kind of gender equality and pointing those um, areas of inequality out, but it's also pulling in other aspects of inequality that are just as deeply entwined in church culture um, and and raising them together, raising those issues together and showing that they're part and part, they're they're connected. One does not happen without the other. Yeah, Um, that's so helpful. Thank you. 
Yeah. Well, thanks ever so much for coming on. And uh, again, like, just love the book. I love the way it is the UK and US because a lot of the time, us UK Christian, you know, Christians, it's we're reading American stuff and only American research. I kind of just, I just love the way it is the UK and the US and how we can see the the differences because there are differences, obviously, and as well as similarities. So, yeah, thanks ever so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you both. And it's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you. All right, ladies. So now we've listened to the podcast. Uh, what did you think? Uh, Vicky, obviously, you're not in the interview. So uh, what was your highlights or something that popped out at you? Um, it was a great interview. She, she, I love the research that she's done and the fact that there is somebody doing research on it because we've known about it like on the peripheral, but the fact that someone actually researching it in the US and the UK is, is great to hear. Um, the thing that really spoke to me about was about purity culture. Like that, that section was just, because I, I know there's a, there's a lot of people talking about it, but the actual nitty gritty of it to hear, instead of reading it just in a book, but to hear somebody actually speak about it was really powerful. I think what I appreciated about that section as well is that she's had collected so many different women's stories and how it had impacted them. Um, and it, it isn't just about, if you're a young single in the church, but the kind of ongoing impact of if you, which we did talk about in the interview, but if you've kind of lived that life and you're divorced or you're widowed or, you know, you're still married, but the effects of that is still outworking itself in your life. I think that is a really important discussion to be had. Yeah, I would, uh, being widowed, I would definitely uh, say that because what do you do with me in purity culture now? I'm, I'm technically I am single, but I'm a strange single, if you like. It's not, and also when I'm a young widow is different to an old widow. Um, you know, I have hopefully the rest of my life ahead of me. Do I want to be married again? What does that mean? What would that look like? What so? What does abstinence mean? Does that you know all those kind of questions that spring up that nobody's talking about? I don't hear anybody talking about it. So. And the church is brilliant about about being silent about the awkward, aren't they? So if anything is awkward, it's like, mm, mm, I don't really say anything about that. Vicky, not, Vicky needs to not sit on her, uh, you know, uh, porch, you know, talking about other women or something when you're a young widow, like, don't be like gossiping. <laughs> <laughs> get married if you're gossiping Vicky right (laughs) (laughs) but it's true purity culture has nothing to say about that does it and we're still in this weird church context where there is enough women and men around that have got the hanger like the, the complete hangover from purity culture but nobody's like yeah what it doesn't speak to those kind of different situations because it was only really speaking to teenagers and young 20s who you know if you're perfect you stay pure well you'll get this amazing marriage um Mm. and those people all grew up and realized that it was a bit of a fake promise yeah and I think there's a I don't think people speak about their experiences of being married when they're not married anymore Mm. so you know do the divorcees speak about their marriage I, I don't know but in terms of being widowed I don't think necessarily you know especially it's different when you know it's someone who's died because you want to honor their memory and you want to you know remember them well but if things weren't well what, what 
are people talking about that? I don't know. Um, like I know for me, um, I obviously I want to honor my husband's memory, but also purity culture, you know, what does that mean in that setting, in my marriage setting? I, you know, are people talking about that? Are people talking about the shame that might have been felt or, you know, what happened when, uh, you know, what now that I'm not married, what do I do with, I've got no one to talk to about the things I felt and what I experienced and, you know, what do I do with that now and how do I feel and what do I, what do I do if I do like somebody and I do, yeah. I am attracted to somebody. That mean, Does that mean I have to get married to them mm. to be close to them? Well, hold on a minute. I've got all this stuff going on from being widowed that I'm going to bring to that. What does that mean? Yeah. And purity culture was so driven by shame and guilt um, that, I, you know, I think there's probably a whole generation or two that have got those hang-ups. And if you've not worked it through or not had the space to, or, you know, even if you've not even really thought about it, like you've, there's all this stuff whirring around in your brain. And until you're confronted with it, you don't even know it's there. It's like buried so deep because you've like, I think we talked about on the podcast, like you've kind of completed purity culture, like mm. you got married, um, or, you know, and then, and then you're supposed to just be totally fine with doing absolutely everything. And, um, yeah. you know, we were talking earlier, weren't we about how, you know, the church is not the place for any kind of, helpful sex education um it's too it be binary right so it's too binary so it's like don't have sex get married have sex yeah and that's the end there's no other contingency plan so if someone's widowed or if someone's divorced because of abuse or whatever like uh, yeah. or for whatever reason you know and that's it that purity culture is like don't have sex then get married have sex yeah that's it like there's no other avenue and that's how narrow it is and actually you know I don't the bible doesn't you know not to be like you know literalist but you know one Corinthians seven like the I feel like the bible isn't that binary because the thing is the reality is in the ancient world as in other parts of the world that's not necessarily western world where like life is more fragile you know, the reality is that people die in war, in famine, in suffering. You know, there is a lot more grey areas when it comes to marriage. I mean, that's how I see it. It's like it's not quite as black and white, but because we, you know, for the last 50 years, right, patriarchal complementarianism, uh, you know, post-feminism uh, and stuff, you know, we're like, you should do this, you should do this, you know, is actually a, a privilege because most people in the world mm-hmm. and most people in history have not lived in a peaceful, a peaceful world where they didn't have to go to war, where they didn't die of the, the disease or illness, like on a, a pandemic level. And I think that's the problem, how narrow evangelicalism and, you know, complementarianism has become because it's narrow, a purity culture, it's narrow. It basically says the assumption is you will live a long life and so therefore don't have sex, have sex when you're married, have children, you know, ignoring the fact whether you can have it, children, 
and then live with that person for the rest of your life till you die. And it's like the reality of history hasn't lived that way. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's the issue, you know, yeah. for me, that's the issue. Mm-hmm. And purity culture really only exists within that kind of complementarian worldview where the, yeah. the, the female stays pure for the man and then she does all the sexual things that, yeah, that, well, then she pleases her husband for the rest of her life and she, you know, has the children and raises them and yada, yada, yada. Um, but that, the purity culture picture is all about making sure that the man kind of gets what he mm, yeah. is entitled to, which is a beautiful wife who's kept herself pure and yep. will therefore provide, you know, his offspring, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And also um, if he's not satisfied, it's the woman's fault. Yeah. Which yeah. I just, now I just think just makes me want to cry when I hear that. Well, it's just patriarchy, right? Yeah. So this is the idea of Beth Aston Barr is compliment and many others. Complementarianism is patriarchy. Because it makes women less than men. Yeah. And we're Our objects. Okay with that. Yeah. yeah. And that's happening, more, you know, if it just to side, side sweep, but like that's happening more in um, secular culture nowadays with people like Andrew Tate and mm-hmm. these other men that it's, it's, it's patriarchy wrapped up in this new ideology of podcasts and like, but it's like basically men are the providers and do everything and women are just objects. It's just patriarchy. Yeah. 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 And isn't it interesting that we, like, we've come back around to it again. Like we start, yeah. you know, we started with purity culture and when you just dig a tiny bit deeper, you think, yeah, right. Like, we're literally right back here again. Um, this is, you know, patriarchy and yeah. Christian clothing yeah. Um, once again. Yeah. And it's amazing how shame is used against women. Once again, it's, it's same old trick. <laughs> it doesn't change. It's always, you know, the, the emphasis of shame is always on the woman. Yeah. yeah so the, you know and if if the man trips up or whatever or does something he's not supposed to it's like oh that poor poor guy he just gave in to you know yeah. his kind of carnal desires and oh well the woman trips up well you're no good you're dirty you're you know I remember being in those meetings where you have two bits of paper stuck together yeah. and with like you know and they're yeah. kind of, and then they're pulled apart and it's like well look at the state of this and this is what you'll yeah. be presenting it's like what a load of rubbish like yeah. what a load of rubbish but you know, I'm 40 now and I can clear as day remember that analogy. Um, mm. That's the effect it has on people, isn't it? Yes. Or even just the idea of men cheating. And it's like, oh, well, you didn't give him what he needed, so he went elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. It's like, but if woman, if a woman went elsewhere, she's Jezebel. Yep. Yeah. Straight but if the man went elsewhere, well, it's your fault. How come it's not the man's fault if the woman went elsewhere? So that's a, a whole patriarchal thing. But anyway, like I just, you know, just to close up, because obviously, you know, it wasn't just about that kind of thing with the book, but um, just this idea of single women and, uh, you know, whether whether divorced or uh, widowed or never married, just it, with, of this idea that you don't fit in a certain space in the church and just that as us as Christian women who are married um, to add on to the book that, mm. you know, we don't always feel 
that we are included in those spaces because we're strong, we're leaders, we're, you know, um, articulate, uh, you know, just like whatever it is, you know, you don't feel like you belong in those spaces as well. So it's such a narrow idea of what it means to be a woman in evangelical spaces, white evangelical spaces. And I just think that, you know, Katie's book is really accessible for all women um and really I would you know for me I absolutely loved reading the book um it becomes more in this for me personally I liked it because it seemed to uh, encompass charismatic evangelical spaces rather than like really really conservative conservative spaces which a lot of uh, people I know have been in so I really I really appreciated that and um yeah, I just would really recommend that people read her books. Because yeah, it's really I, useful and, and a, a real tool um, to speak what people are, what women want to say without, you know. And she says it for them. So, yeah, I think it's beautifully written as well, isn't it? Like it's not yeah. just a textbook. It's not just her presenting her research in a kind of like formulaic way. Like the stories are interwoven between each other, and then you know we didn't we didn't address this or talk about it in the podcast, but there's loads of her own personal story as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, like similarly, I loved reading it, Um, you know, quickly got through it because it is such an engaging read. Um, So yeah, if people are thinking like whether they should get a hold of it, I would definitely say it's worth, it's worth reading because there are so many familiar stories within it. Um, And yeah, familiar situations. And yeah, it's like, it's literally women's lives in the UK and the U S yeah, you, out. you can read yourself in the stories, right? So, yeah, definitely. You no, know, it's not just, yeah, um, you know, even though she's a doctor of psycho- uh, sociology and stuff, it's not like just um, ap- academic reading. It is personal stories that you can you can read yourself into. So, you know, I would say, yeah, I yeah, I don't I don't always read every book. <laughs> I've done podcasts. I've done quite a few podcasts, not just on this one, but another one. I used to do another podcast. But, you know, I really do recommend this, you know, reading the book and stuff. So, plus, I want to be her best friend. Katie, be my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Sarah's like, oh my God, she's so pretty and lovely and clever. Like, be my best friend, Katie. <laughs> she won't even listen to this. <laughs> You put it out there now. You're not even that far away from me. Like, be my best friend, Katie. (laughs) Yeah, um, (laughs) that's a great. Yeah, it was a great book. It was really good. Really helpful as a Christian woman. And uh, yeah. Okay, so thanks ever so much for listening to the podcast, and I hope you got so much out of Katie's interview. We absolutely loved interviewing her, and uh, yeah, we will see you again soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the recovering god podcast please remember to rate subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested you can find us on twitter and instagram at recovering god or contact us by email at recovering god podcast at gmail.com